0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a poetry reading by distinguished poet and translator Peter Cole, reading from his translations of Hebrew poetry from Muslim and Christian Spain, and from his own recent work.
1: I usually treat my readings as compositions. Each one is a a kind of composition, uh, you know, sort of improvisational uh, composition, and So I put together a series of poems that connect each in their own way to uh, people here, people in this room, this building, my time in New Haven, uh, many of the people who teach at Yale who have meant so much to me uh, in their own writing for so many years. Um, And um, as Lenny said, I'm going to read from these two books, but I want to start with a, a new adaptation, let's say. Um, we'll, we'll say this is from Maria because it's from Spanish which I don't read. Uh, it's by one of my favorite poets uh, in the world, Santo de Carrion. you can maybe you should pronounce it correctly for us uh, I, don't, I, uh, I always need to have a somebody in the audience with me to uh, get me through Polish names of Polish towns and Spanish. Uh, Writers, but Santob, uh, whose the name Santob is uh, is Shemtov in Hebrew, and he's also a marvelous poet in Hebrew. And he's in the Dream of the Poem as a Hebrew writer from 14th century Castile. And um, in my second book of poems, I have a long suite uh, based on his moral proverbs, a book of his, and um, which I adapted using um, Tony Perry's. Uh, uh, scholarly translations of his work. And I can't get enough of Santope, so I want to start with uh, um, some new new poems by, I want to say new poems by him, but um, Leon Wieseltier, who many of you know, once when I did my first medieval collection, said that I should call it uh, New and Selected Poems of Shmuel Hanagid, 11th century poet. Anyway, so this is, can you hear me okay in the back? Yeah? Can you hear me even if I take off my glasses? Oh. You can, yep. Okay. I can't hear and see at the same time. More for Santo de Carrion, 14th century Castile. So these are pretty close to literal versions in the sense of the meaning, but then I sort of let myself run with them, and I've woven together different passages to um, make them all mean just a little more. Everyone so high. Everyone so high on yes. Nothing has made me happier, though. Then the day I asked my lover if she had another, and she said no. (laughs) Two, there are four parts. Spell and praise, spell and praise. These, These next two are kind of riddles. A choir of quatrains in praise of the servant who asks of me nothing for what he does. For years he's afforded me spectacular favors, as though in fact he served out of love. He somehow bears, though slight in stature, the weight of the world within his words. And blind he sees what I hold in mind. Deaf he absorbs what I've not yet heard. He knows what I want before I've spoken, and without speaking says who I am. And so I've done as my debts demanded and sung for this spell in praise of the pen. Three, how friends act. Is anything better than a pair of scissors which separates those that separate them? They do this not because they're bitter, but out of desire to meet again. When they're joined, they do no harm, hand to hand and lip to lip. Only when parted can they destroy. That's how strong their loyalty is. Those who'd learn what brotherhood means and how friends act when all is done should watch as scissors make one of two. And when they have to, two of one. Four, for being born. For being born on a bush of thorns, the rose is certainly worth no less. Nor should wine be scorned, that's fine, but comes from lesser parts of the vine. The hawk is likewise not worth less. For being born in a humble nest, and proverbs aren't less subtle or true for being uttered by a Jew. <laughs> so that's uh, Uncle Santo, as I've come to think of him. Part Edmund Jabez, part Archie Bunker. Um, so now to a, uh, a few poems of my own. Um, this one starts in the medieval world. starts in 13th century Provence and ended in, uh, or w- ended up being written in 21st century Jerusalem and, and continues now. Um, it's called Improvisation on Lines by Isaac the Blind. Isaac the Blind was a, a, a major Jewish, uh, major Kabbalist, a mystical philosopher. Um, there's a word in the poem that might ha- help to know, Bulbul, um, Apart from those who have been to Israel. I'm just curious. It's actually in the Oxford English Dictionary, but anybody know what a bulbul is? Uh, bulbul is a Persian nightingale. Um, You see them in a lot of Persian miniatures. They have bright uh, yellow uh, breasts, and uh, they're actually quite aggressive and nasty birds, but they're very beautiful. Um, And so this is a kind of uh, really, a kind of credo for the sort of things that Lanny was talking about the confusion, where nourishment comes, and what you do with the raw materials of the world. And the first, uh, so the first two lines are by Isaac the Blind, and they're, uh, it's a the kind of poem you cannot read in front of high school students. You'll see why. Only by sucking, not by knowing, can the subtle essence be conveyed. Sap of the word in the world's flowing that raises the scent of the almond blossoming and yellows the bulbul in the olive's jade. Only by sucking, not by knowing. The grass and oxalis in the pines growing are luminous in us, petal and blade. As sap of the word in the world's flowing, a flicker rising from embers glowing light Trapped in the trees, sweet braid of what it was sucking, not by knowing is the amber honey of persimmon drawn in. An anemone piercing the clover persuades me. Sap of the word and the world is flowing across separation through wisdom's bestowing, and in that persuasion choices are made. But only by sucking not by knowing that sap of the word through the world is flowing. Um, Lanny also mentioned the the title poem of this book, Things on Which I've Stumbled, which I'd like to read just a uh, snippet from. Um, So he's told you what the Cairo Geniza is. I would just add that... um, Texts were put or put traditionally in a geniza, in this repository, which is a practice that um, is still carried out uh, all over the world by traditional Jews. If you go to a like Hebrew Union college or any sort of, any, anywhere where there's Jewish learning going on, uh, of any sort alongside secular learning or a Jewish traditional learning, so if you're Xeroxing, you know, when you Xerox and you make bad Xeroxes, you just throw the papers away. But if it's a place which is sensitive to these, uh, these needs, there'll be a box for things with the, name, which, with the name of God on them to be put in Geniza. Right? And so then the janitor throws them out or does whatever he does with them. But in theory, and in fact there is in Jerusalem a municipal Geniza and so forth, and for whatever reason, this particular um, community in Cairo One particular synagogue and the the members of that community didn't just preserve or protect from profanation. That's the idea with the Geniza is texts that are discarded or about to be discarded that are worn out and not fit for use have to be eventually buried like a person, right? And they have to be protected, you bury to protect from profanation. So the texts, too, have to be protected. And so usually they're, they're put in this kind of interim uh, place, this, uh, this Genizah, this storehouse, and eventually are to be buried. And in this particular community, uh, for reasons we don't quite know, we've got some theories. Dean and I are now writing a book for Shaka, next book about the Genizah. Uh, by the end of the book, we'll know more. Um, and uh, they put everything with Hebrew letters in this Geniza. Everything, including texts, written personal letters, shopping lists, commercial documents, Everything, including things written in Judeo-Arabic, which is say Arabic, the Arabic that, that's written with Hebrew letters. So they were put in this attic above a woman's synagogue, and again, for reasons we don't quite know, they forgot about them. For a 1,000 years, papers accumulated in this attic, particularly from the 10th through the 12th century, and it was discovered at the end of the 19th century, also in a kind of uh, Indiana, Jewish Indiana Jones-like sequence of events and brought back to Cambridge, England, where there, these things are now um, in the university library. There was a big thing on Darwin in the New York Times yesterday. They're kept right next to the Charles Darwin papers. When I first encountered these things, I was led past the Darwin papers. The person giving me the private tour said, those are the Darwin papers, and here's the Geniza. And they, they just sort of let me roam around. And um, she had showed the, the curator showed me a bunch of poems that I knew from the Geniza, and then um, said, you can just poke around. And I began pulling things off the shelf. And there were certain small fragments that kind of jumped out at me. They were so incredibly vivid and lively. And they you know, they seemed to be glowing in a certain sense. They just seemed radioactive. And so I put them back on the shelf, and I'd walk away. And I'd go back and look again. And much to my amazement, I actually understood what they were saying, because I'm not a, a manuscript scholar. And um, that stayed with me for the better part of a year. And eventually I got it in my mind to uh, ask permission to come back and play with these documents. And I had an idea that maybe I would write a poem about them, but I had no idea what the poem would be. Or even if I would actually be able to, um, to, under, to read, decipher the rest of these manuscripts, or else I'd end up like Jack Nicholson uh, in The Shining, just sitting up on the fourth floor of the library uh, writing all work. And no play makes Johnny a dull boy. But a poem did emerge, and so this is what I'm going to read. I'm just going to read the preamble to it, um, and then I'm going to skip and read the beginning of section two, which is ostensibly about um, the textile industry in the medieval Mediterranean, but is simultaneously about a very different kind of commerce and craft and and culture. So, things on which I've stumbled among the remains of the Geniza. Maybe I'll add one other little tidbit, which is, and this is referred to in passing, and it's in the notes, it, when men would wear these gowns, right, and they were, you'll see they're very interested in in, 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 cl- in fabric, and often they would embroider poems or lines of poems on their sleeves. Literally, kind of the hearts on the sleeve, uh, and this would be part of the ornamental uh, outfit. Things on which I've stumbled. Poetry and all that garbage left in a pocket of the mind, or a pair of pants, a robe, or slipped inside a book. Thoughts disject a membra, a letter forgotten, a recipe scribbled on its back, a shopping list, a bill once due, living's marginalia. The rubble of what we've known was true. And so not just the names of God they sought to guard from desecration but the forms composing them. Letters are things, not pictures of things. Eric Gill would reach Jerusalem, and from the refuse heap before him Five fine covers, one gazelle's blood red, one a violet that's pure, one the color of musk, the other sulfur yellow and silver, and eight small carpets, please my lord, the red should be as red as could be, the yellow and white should be exquisite, the gold brocade is very pretty, but not what I wanted exactly, for it's white and blue, Well, I hadn't mind an onion color, an open hue, but the, le- the, but the lead gray robe is superb. You also asked for headscarves. Although you know what a nuisance that is, the sook's packed from dawn to dusk, it made me have a relapse twice. But this is what I bought. One black with a white border just as you ordered, another azure with gold threads, the others oak green cream and red. You asked too about the pearl and the light grayish honeydew. But these were mediocre or overpriced and I think a waste of money. Thus, the color intoxication that's spoken of. The dyes extracted from nature, Brazil wood, indigo, saffron, and soot, asparagus, kermes, and murex mixed with mordants for yarn which was soaked in it, transformed then on a loom, fold or thrown, beaten or pressed, to make a soul or room complete with what their poets knew. That beauty carried covers more than just a flaw or seam in being that lets us see what's real, but is itself a means of conducting things concealed that can't by nature be revealed. Thus, it's evocation, it's calling forth and lifting. Thus, the rabbi's saying a person should always be willing to overpay for clothing. But not for drink and food. Thus, the root, along which fabric flowed, like poems. So that's a taste of what that is like. And um, with that, I'd like to move to some medieval poems that actually come from the Geniza. Um In a few cases here, things that um, things that I stumbled on, but um, things that I was that. We have only because the sole copy exists, was found in the Geniza, brought back in the 19th century. But in many cases, um, these poems weren't discovered until quite recently, because uh, actually, it was a room like this. Um, Solomon Schechter, many of you might know that name, he's the man who went and brought it back and then sort of initiated the whole uh, recovery project. When he brought all the stuff back, he went through what he could. It was a mess. They're, he called it a kind of battlefield of, of, of books. And everything was just thrown on top of each other. And there were manuscripts that looked like you know, pieces of paper that you crumpled up and throw away and that have a, another 1,000 years of paper on top of them. Right? And the climate was very dry, so they, were, they didn't fall apart. But the ink would begin to fall off, and they didn't know what to do with all this, and they didn't have techniques also for preserving it. And so a lot of the stuff was just kept in boxes for years, and several of the boxes had on them for you know to be incinerated, and they were literally going to be burned in the 50s. And there was kind of sheer luck that the one librarian decided to show um, a scholar who visiting from Israel, uh, S. D. Goitain, for those of you who know, and. He said, don't burn that box. <laughs> you know, He picked up the first thing, don't burn that box. And they found all kinds of poems in these boxes. And they're still finding things. So for example, on that tour that I was given uh, by a woman named Rebecca Jefferson, the poetry curator there, I don't usually have that kind of fetishized relationship to manuscripts. But my knees were definitely uh, trembling when I was looking at these things. Um, so one, I'll read you two poems. Uh, these are, I'm going to read mostly very, very minor poems, in this case. Just a few of them to give you a taste. And there's a poet I like very much at the beginning of the period named Yosef um, Ibn Abi Avitor. And he was a kind of crusty character who um, had a chance to become the head of the academy, the, the Jewish academy, Hebrew academy in Spain. He was lost out in a kind of battle against a rival for that office. The caliph uh, in Andalusia, and there was still a caliph then, it was the 10th century. Uh, basically, said to him, you know, if my people treated you the way your people treated you, I take that as a sign and go somewhere else. Which is was a sign to him that he was no longer welcome, and he ended up wandering around the Jewish world in the East, Egypt and Syria and Babylonia uh, for the rest of his life, uh, very disgruntled, and um, making enemies wherever he went, and. One of the texts, the poems of his that they found in the Geniza was the following curse that he wrote. It's an uh, alphabetical curse. In the the translation, it's not alphabetical. Um, And there are a couple of lines missing where the gall, the ink, uh, ate through the paper. The rag paper is very tough, but the the ink sometimes is corrosive. And uh, this appears to be a, a reusable curse, uh, it's not particular to any one person, and, but does apply to any number of situations, uh, as you'll see. It's quite lively. A curse. Let moaning and mourning circle his skull, and great desolation come over his pate. May rage and rebuke wear through his brow, and in his eyes may fire blaze. May the pit in its fever shrivel his tongue, and through his cheeks may leprosy run. May stones and break his teeth, May offering and slaughter slice through his throat. May grief and languor weigh on his arms, and weakness and sorrow slacken his palms. May forked flames burn through his fingers. May blows batter his back and shoulders, and may the destroyer shatter his ribs. May sweeping and rattle his windows, uprooting his, shaking his bones, May his liver be pierced and split. May tyrants and enemies crush his hips. Let rocks and arrows strike through his knees. Ravaged and torn, may his buttocks bleed. May clubs rain down on his feet till he reels. May curses close in from his head to his heels. So that's one of the earlier poems, (laughs) one of the earlier poems written in the Arabic style uh, that the Hebrew poets took from Arabic, writing in quantitative meter. Uh, and with a uh, mono rhyme, right beside this now in the in the Geniza files is a poem also by Ibn Abi that is a kind of flip side of his rage. This kind of very tender, bittersweet regret. It's a poem to his own soul, feeling a little sorry for himself in his wandering, but also understanding that uh, that. There's more to life than, uh, than those curses and, and everything else that he's been doing in his uh, thirst for power. Um, and this poem, they've determined, scholars have determined, is in the poet's own handwriting. And it's literally on a piece of paper about this big. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you're, you're just jotting something down somewhere. It's an irregular-shaped piece of paper and um, because they found other things by him. Uh, not poetic st- t- text, but uh, expository material, they've determined that it is his handwriting. So there was this really, very just, you know, it really gave me um, shivers to be holding this poem. And so I wanted to put that in the book, and it, I gave it the title, uh, A Plea. It's, as I say, this is kind of the undertow of his cantankerousness side. My, and then the, there's a, a, the second line of the poem is missing. My soul, which wanders on and on, and loosen the bands of these worthless men. Let day dawn on your judgment's order, grant strength to one who has done no wrong but is hounded. Help him, Lord, find shelter. Bring your power to the aid of a man, pursuing goodness as the godless gather. I weep and the tears on my cheeks stream with blood and grief has made me bitter." And one last uh, medieval poem. Um, Ibn Gabirol, one of the greatest poets uh, of the period, major philosopher, also uh, a successor to Ibn Avitur in uh, misanthropy, um, also like Ibn Abitur had this very tender side. And um, one of his uh, most famous poems, he's got a lot of really just fabulous poems. Uh, he's got this um, sort of book length poem called Kingdom's Crown, uh, which is really sort of a map of the entire cosmos. And the Seattle Symphony is actually doing a, um, a commissioned to peace that's going to premiere in June uh, based on, on this work. And he's really a kind of symphonic thinker. Um, but this is just a small lyric, a philosophical poem. Uh, a lot of these works had captions over them in Arabic, in Judeo-Arabic, written either by the poet on rare occasion, usually by a later editor. Uh, so sometimes, you know, of questionable reliability. Um, in this case, the, uh, the caption says, this is for all the uh, teachers in the audience, an answer, t- an answer to a student who is asked about the nature of existence. And this is uh, his answer. It's described as, line for line, the most written about uh, poem in in the canon. Although it's actually, in some ways, quite straightforward. So it's very much in the Greek, Platonic, erotic tradition. I love you with the love a man has for his only son, with his heart and his soul and his might. And I take great pleasure in your mind as you take the mystery on of the Lord's act in creation, though the issue is distant and deep and who could approach its foundation. But I'll tell you something I've heard and let you dwell on its strangeness. Sages have said that the secret of being owes all to the all who has all in his hand. He longs to give form to the formless as a lover longs for his friend. And this is maybe what the prophets meant when they said he worked all for his own exaltation. I've offered you these words. Now show me how you'll raise them. Um, As Lanny said, these... uh, this immersion in translation, not just from the Middle Ages, also uh, contemporary work, but um, especially the, the the medieval stuff, has created uh, has gone very deeply into me and created a kind of erased the border between poet and translator in some ways, um, and that has been both a, a painful thing and a, and a marvelous thing. And um, this poem, the the ruzzle or guzzle of what hurt is very much about that kind of confusion, um, but it's not merely about literary translation. It's about, uh, there's a note to the poem that says it's a, an ode to titanium training and translation. And translation uh, for the reasons I just said, training because it's really about the incorporation, literally the taking into one's body or one's the body of one's poetic work, but physically into one's body Voices from the past, voices from one's own tradition, uh, and having them make you somebody else in some way, right? Having them change you profoundly and painfully. And then the titanium part is something of an inside joke. Um, for those of you who don't know, I have two hip replacements made of titanium. And this seems to be the perfect metaphor for the introduction of uh, the painful introduction of foreign bodies into one, which makes life uh, more wonderful. Um, And so this poem was actually written uh, a little while, about six or seven weeks after my second operation, when for the first time in uh, too long, uh, I could walk without a cane and really without any pain. And suddenly, just that sensation of being able to walk without thinking about walking seemed to me the most miraculous thing in the world. Um, So the poem emerged from that moment. Um, Everything at the beginning, particularly the first half of the poem, is a kind of literal description of that sort of pain, and so it says scars, talk about scars, um, but it also is you know, highly figurative, uh, including the compositional elements of, uh, of our bodies. The result of What Hurt. Pain froze you for years in fear, leaving scars, but now, as though miraculously it seems, here you are walking easily across the ground and into town as though you were floating on air, which, in part, you are. Or riding a wave of what feels like the world's goodwill, though helped along by something foreign and older than you are, and yet much younger, too, inside you, and so palpable in x-ray, you're sure would show it within the body you are. Not all that far beneath the skin and even in some bones, making you wonder... Are you what you are? With all that isn't actually you having flowed through and settled in you and made you what you are? The pain was never replaced, nor was it quite erased. It's memory now, so you know just how lucky you are. You didn't always. Were you then? And where's the fear? Inside your words, like an engine, the car you are? face it, friend. You most exist when you're driven away or on by forms and forces greater than you are. And here's a form and force greater than I am. Valentine's Day is upon us. And this poem is called, Valent Lines for a What law and power has blessed me so that in this provocation of flesh I have been wedded to gentleness Delicacy of an intricate mesh of our thought and meals and talking has brought me to this exultation of syllables and a speechlessness, to December dusk and desk and skin, in the amber of our listening, dawn again pink with munificence hard again blurred by its ignorance. Toward you in that equation I turn and you in turn involve our being spun like wool from which soul is weaving a use for that useless opulence. Doing and making, the end served by what it is we make and what we do is what has made me. Making and you. I'll read just two more poems. Um, We had uh, elections in Israel uh, yesterday. Was it yesterday? I think two days ago? Yesterday? Um, And that's where we're heading uh, soon. And the situation there, has, as you know, has not changed very much. I suppose you could say it's gotten a little worse, Um, but it's essentially the same story over and over again. And (coughs) Given what I, what this poem churns up, it seems to have been the same situation there for a long, long time. Um, the last poem was about a kind of uh, cohabitation, shall we say. This poem is called Coexistence of a Very Different Kind. Um, I call it Coexistence, a lost and almost found poem, in the sense of the, of the coexistence itself being um, certainly something that uh, we have not yet found. But the poem itself, the technique of the poem, is... Uh, nearly a found poem which is to say uh, something that I just came across and then uh, either didn't touch and just called a poem or in this case manipulated in different ways and uh, the basic situation is that uh, Dina and I um, reading the paper we get the uh, Herald Tribune delivered to our door every morning with the, New- which is essentially the New York Times now with Haaretz, the Hebrew paper in it translated into English so we actually get the New York Times uh, way before you do uh, 5.30 in the morning it arrives at our doorstep and um, Edina likes to read the, uh, the, uh, the bleaker news first, the front page uh, of her arts especially. And I like to read the sports pages and save the bad news for later in the day when I have a drink. And, um, but one day she said, no, no, you've got to look at this. It's unbelievable what it says here. And it was uh, an article, a long article, about what the construction of the separation fence or barrier or wall, whatever you want to call it. I don't think it makes any difference what you call it. Uh, it's doing the same thing. Um, what it was doing on the two sides of the fence, which is to say, on our side, on the Jewish side, it was um, preventing suicide bombs, which is obviously a very, very important thing. And um, we live downtown. We used to feel those suicide bombs in our chest. We had a friend killed in one. Um, but of course, Israelis have no idea what's going on on the other side of the wall. Things are good for now, so we sort of forget about what's, what the wall is actually doing. And this article was all about that. So I read the article. um, I went to my study to work on the medieval poetry, which is all based, as most of you or some of you know, on uh, entirely biblical vocabulary based on the biblical text essentially, just shattered and rearranged very freely. And um, so I'm constantly consulting the Bible as a kind of thesaurus or dictionary or or source book. And um, I just happened to open to some passages, uh, to a passage in Deuteronomy, which seemed to me just a kind of uncanny commentary on what I just read in the paper. I mean, the, just, it, the, the the comparison, the 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 parallel was just shouting at me. And I thought, well, oh, how is it that I've never really paid attention to this passage in Deuteronomy before? And then so I looked down a little bit further, and all the subsequent verses also seemed to be direct and apt commentaries on the events of the day. And so it just, again, a poem sort of began to form itself uh, with the little, uh, help from the uh, gods of prosody. Um, So I wove those two together, and this is the poem, Coexistence, a lost and almost found poem. It starts with an epigraph from Leviticus, and the Levite shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice. I should also say that the the medieval poetry from Spain is so much a product of coexistence, and in fact, the term convivencia, right, Maria, is essentially linguistic convivencia originally, right? But the reflection of the... um, the, the two cultures living side by side, you know, for better and worse, but certainly culturally for better for a, a period of time, um, you know, the lack of that is sort of screaming uh, in this poem and uh, I think very much in cultural life uh, in Israel today. So this is the poem. Over the border the barrier winds devouring orchards of various kinds. Cursed be he that taketh away the landmark of his neighbor. And all the people shall say, Amen. The road was blocked in a battle of wills as the lame and sightless trudged through the hills. Cursed be he that maketh the blind to go astray in the way. And all the people shall say, Amen. The army has nearly written a poem. You'll now need a permit just to stay home cursed be he that perverteth the justice due to the, str- the justice due to the stranger in scripture and all the people shall say amen taken away in the dead of night by a secret policeman who might be a levite cursed be he that turneth to smite his neighbor in secret murder and all the people shall say amen as peace is sought through depredation living together in separation Cursed be he that confirmeth not the words of this law to do them and all the people shall say amen. And I'll end with a poem that was literally written right down the hall. Once, I forget what the office number is here but across the hall from Harold's uh, room. And um, it's called Notes on Bewilderment. Lanny mentioned it, read the opening stanza. And um, Literally, the whole thing was, was written here and uh, two years ago. And it also works in um, my encounters with some of you here and uh, things I read by some of you here and things I heard and things I saw when I walked outside. And the uh, operative principle really was um, uh, the poem as a kind of giant sea worm where the, you know, it just was open all the time. Water that was fl- Whatever was flowing through... The structure, the five-line structure, stanzaic structure that I developed for this poem, would simply digest that material, and um, this is the poem. So I'm, not, I'm only going to read um, some sections from it, and in particular, I've chosen sections that again relate to uh, my affection for this place and for the people here. Um, some of the um, and 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 the subjects that uh, many of you are interested in. Um, some of the, I don't mention anybody by name, but you might recognize a few things. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. Always wrote Machado, seek in the, that's Antonio Machado, the Spanish poet. Always wrote Machado, seek in the mirror. The one who's walking beside you, the other. The what he meant by that mirror, I've never been Sure. Clearly, he meant it more than literally, given his feel for the flowing river. The song another poet sang has gone out of me, glossing theatrically his loss of innocence. I, innocent, thought it the height of profundity. Now, I think his notion of song itself may have done him in. The dream of the poem, he told the closest angel of poetry asking how he'd titled his book. The dream of the poem, the warm angel echoed, adding bemused, it's a little weird, which it was, summoning fate like peril. It isn't done with tracing paper. Things signaled by words charged in a row begin to converge, just as hope a single one or pair might be rendered fades. So we enter the sacred order from which translation springs. In an extension of the mind, nearing its limits, deltas of twisting branches forking finally towards a pewter sky, shifting as roots of those trees descend through silt to sewage and clay. There, Solomon said, are spirits. The postcard from Theresienstadt bore a stamp of serious interest to the boy, whose grandmother's message read, I am in good health. Everything is fine. It must, he thought, be a nice place for vacation or camp. All the rivers, it's getting somehow truer and truer. Run into the sea, which is never full said Kohelet, the preacher, combining in lines as close to a sigh as any might be, pointlessness and splendor. Listen, happiness is a reflection, he said. It doesn't arise through self-contemplation, except as that withdrawal deflects one's recall, like clouds in the skyscraper's glass. It's a seam along which the heart is fed Thus the call for clarity, the lover's creed. Things heard as though within one, but suddenly freed by others' words. Nothing's original, not even sin. The mild wind now blowing may be wisdom bringing someone what he needs. Bringing him back to the perpetual lie of freedom in beginning, which is only freedom to begin again. Art, the poet said, it cures affliction. With deception, even as death endures, still we try. Lord, goes the prayer, increase my bewilderment, which really means allow me to question everything. But not be lost within that stands to the small flowers of common sense in season. Increase, Lord, my discontent, but keep me from resentment. Reason as well has its season, although we don't believe it or put too much faith in it. It's true that one and one on occasion is three or more, and the middle way is often mystical. Lord goes the prayer, keep me from delusion which really means allow my mind to open to all that comes my way without bringing ruin upon me through fusion of things that are distinct at heart. Keep me from conclusion while the case is being made, and the world is all that is the case. Keep me from too much seclusion Increase my confusion with thee, it says. But is that, in fact, another matter I wondered as the dervish's world? And may my love and language lead me into that perplexity and that simplicity, altering what I might otherwise be, but let it happen through speech's clarity as normal magic, which certain words renew." Thank you.
0: <laughs> NEA, NEH, Guggenheim and MacArthur Award winner Peter Cole was the Frankie Visiting Fellow at the Whitney Humanities Center in 2006. He returned to the Whitney for this reading in celebration of two new books. The Dream of the Poem, Hebrew Poetry from Muslim and Christian Spain, 950-1492, to 1492. and Things on Which I've Stumbled. Peter Cole gave this poetry reading on February 11, 2009, at the Whitney Humanities Center.